New Perspectives on Irish History, Dreams, Themes, Myth and Ecology. This series looks at Irish history from different perspectives, starting from the time when the island of Ireland was a great forest. It talks about the first inhabitants, their lifestyles, and how they differed from the world we live in today. The series seeks to give perspectives other than the military-focused accounts of previous historical series. In this programme we speak to a large variety of people on a range of subjects relevant to the series, new perspectives on Irish history, dreams, themes, myth and ecology. John Moriarty, philosopher, poet, was born the 2nd of February 1938 and died on the 1st of June 2007. Many recognise John as a major writer, comparable to Yeats, Joyce and Beckett. A collection of his 13 CDs and his talks are available from Lilliput Press. And the moment you hear once upon a time, you let go of the common sense world, don't you, or the practical world, the common sense world, the world of Aristotle's principle of non-contradiction. You let go of all of that and the house can be a gingerbread house and a little Lord Riding Hood can go through the wood and not find her grandmother in the bed. So like all time is, is once upon a time time. And these stories grow out of that once upon a time time. And once upon a time time is a perennial state of mind. And I think it is when we enter once upon a time time, we are nearer the creative genius of the universe. We are then, I think, walking where, uh, according to Australian Aborigines, the Alturingamit Gina, the eternal ones of the dream in the beginning walked, that creative dream time that is in the beginning. So, like, common sense expectations, you know, ought ideally now to fall away. And we have, uh, I suppose, Yeats's Song of the Wandering Angus, surely that's is took place what hap- what is described in that poem took place in once upon a time time to remember I went out to the hazel wood because a fire was in my head and plucked and peeled a hazel wand and hooked a berry to a thread and when white moths were on the wing and moth like stars were flickering out I cast the berry in a stream and caught a little silver <coughs> trout when I had laid it on the floor I went to blow the fire aflame but something rustled on the floor and someone called me by my name it had become a glimmering girl with apple blossom in her hair who called me by my name and ran and faded through the brightening air though I am old with wandering through hollow lands and hilly lands I will find out where she has gone and kiss her lips and take her hands and walk among long dappled grass and pluck till time and times are done the silver apples of the moon, the golden apples of the sun. So, like, we want to now walk into that world where a silver trout, the fire, the tremendous fire, into the hazel wood, and the fire is in you. And the hazel wood is, is a dimension of your own mind. The hazel wood isn't so much a wood outside. It is a state of your own psyche. It's a state of mind. And Angus went into this. I had, if you like, kind of expensive European education. And yet, at the end of that education, I think the only thing my head could do, in the way it saw the earth, in the way it thought about the earth, like that my European head hurt the earth. It was damaged to the earth. And I felt I had to start again. And going up into the down to do Keoig of Connemara, it wasn't, um, you know, Descartes, or it wasn't, um, you know, even Shakespeare who'd take me up. It was some old Aboriginal stories and some old Native North American Indian stories that took me by the hand and took me back into the earth. Dream has brought you
The Gift of the Tree, a poem by J.B. Goodenough. On the night the child was born, many gifts were given. Gifts of the rich given easily, and gifts of the poor given from hunger and sorrow. But the child was a goodly child, but of the gifts brought to them, none was stranger than the sapling tree. Its branches cut back hard, and its roots bound in tow-cloth, given without name or sign. Where it had come from, the mother did not ask, accepting it with love, as she had accepted the child of her body. And she could hear with the hush and rustle of the new leaves the laughter of a boy-child at play. And dreaming in the dooryard, she saw a young boy tending a sapling tree, pruning it and watering it and teaching it to grow. Fair as he was fair and strong as he was strong, the two of them together bound from the beginning, each one to its own purpose, and in her remembering she smiled and lay easy. J.J. O'Hara talks about his eco-tourism project in the context of the Wild Atlantic Way. We've just started a new project now, which is called the Wild Atlantic Butterfly in our area. And it's to show um, the whole love of the area, the love of music and the love of arts and crafts in our area. But it's also to show in three different other locations in Ireland that people can come and stay three days in each location enjoy the eco-parks, the geoparks, and enjoy the whole love of music in that. Started back about um, 18 months ago, it was the Wild Atlantic Way, which is a 2,500-kilometre route, starting from Cork and right up to Manalhead in Donegal. Um, what we discovered a project in six weeks ago was to develop uh, different locations on this project for out for three days at a time, and which we were calling them the Wild Atlantic Butterfly, the Wild uh, Horse of the Burn in Clare, or the Causeway Bat in the North. And what it is, each location has a geopark. And what it is, as well as touring the different things, to just see the whole history with the geopark and see where the landscape has developed over the years. Ariel Robinson talks about her Sea Trails Eco Tours project. In our fast pace of living nowadays, we forget about the really important things, um, such yeah. as our roots and our identity yeah. and our ancient, uh, I won't say lost because it's not completely mm. lost, but um, mm. I think if we were to continue on in, in the speed that we're doing yeah. and disregard the ancient sites in Ireland and the cultural heritage then we're losing our identity and yeah. people won't want to come to Ireland anymore. Well, of course, it's for the Irish people, mainly their heritage is for the Irish people rather than tourists, isn't that right? Absolutely. I mean, yeah. um, I think first and foremost, it's for the Irish and yeah. then it's up to the Irish then to put it out to the world. Now, you have the sea, sea trails. Tell us about these uh, projects then that you're running up in Sligo uh, to give people new perspectives on Irish history. 
Okay, so Sea Trails is is my business. Um, uh, what I do is I bring out people on guided walking tours and I explain about the archaeological heritage and the sites around you and also the environment. So some of the trails are coastal trails. They're through dunes or along shores and some are inland in mountainous regions and around lakes. So there's a huge variety of trails um, that, that you can do and each has something um, different to, to the other. Um, they are they suit children right up to adults or retired persons. Yeah. OK. Now, um, one of the things happening up in Sligo, Dan, is one that Robert here, Robert McElroy, is familiar with, and it's the Celtic Fringe Festival. OK, well, well the festival essentially recreates um, a figure called Francisco the Cuellar, who basically came ashore around Strida in County Sligo with the Spanish Armada. Uh, he took refuge here. He was given hospitality. He um, he wrote a letter based on his experiences here in Ireland. Uh, so the festival essentially is a recreation of his expedition and the whole event of that time. Um, but what is most interesting about this festival is that it incorporates the ancient mythology of our land and our yeah. connections to Galicia and Scotland and mm. so on. Mm. And given our mythology, which is... A, um, inscribed in the Lower Gavala of the Gaelic people coming from Galicia to Ireland. Yeah. So it inserts and enhances and emphasises mm. this intriguing connection and linkage that we have. Yeah. And hence, we have so many bands, performers, musicians mm-hmm. from Galicia mm. and other Celtic lands coming to participate in this festival. Yeah. Really copper fastens these linkages and these connections in an intriguing way. Tony Cookson talks about how the River Shannon got its name and the four gifts which the Tuatha Dé brought to Ireland. Once upon a time, a long time ago, in fact, before time ever began, there was a woman and her name was Shinnin. And she was a union of two peoples. One, the Fomorians, the people of the earth, and of the Tuatha Dé the people of the beautiful people, the people of the heavens. And she came dancing into this world as a form of love and felt that she would be loved by everyone who met her. But she was, in fact, not loved at all. She was unaccepted by the Fomorians and the Duhad Dedanan together. And over time, her heart hardened She became bitter. And she longed for the day when she could make them all pay for all the sorrow and the sadness of her life. She began to undo the magic spell that would then give her the power to make them all pay. And when she had undone the spell, there was this sound. It was a deep, sound and she knew she knew that she had raised a power that she could not control and so she became very very afraid and she began to run toward the ocean because she knew that if she could get to the ocean the ocean of love that this was the only place where she would be safe and she ran 
She ran as fast as the wind and she came close, very close to the ocean of love. And she would have been safe, except she was interested in what the dark power that followed her looked like. And she turned and looked. And when she looked, she fell. And she was overcome by the dark waters and never came to the sea of love. And the dark waters remain. And the dark waters now have the name of the woman, Shinin, who never reached the ocean of love. I asked him, what were the four gifts that the Tuhedadanan brought to this country? Well, the Tuhedadanan are the people who are given different names. And one of the names that they're given are the beautiful people. And these are the people that were driven underground by the forces of the Formorians. And this represents the mythology that says that we have, in our own lives, driven underground the beauty that is within us. And there are, in the story, four gifts that the Truhad Danon bring to the land of Ireland. And these include a cauldron, a sword, a spear, and a stone of destiny. And each has its own power. And yet if you find even one of these powers within your own life, then you are invited to live the fullness of life. And the cauldron is the cauldron of plenty. And if you stand before this cauldron of plenty and you have a pure heart, what that cauldron, which is both full and empty, will give you a fullness that you are there able to share with others. And there is the sword, and the sword is two-edged, and it is there to cut away all those things that keep you from recognising that you are one of the beautiful people. It cuts away doubt, it cuts away shame, it cuts away all those things that are unloved in yourself. And the spear, the spear represents an attitude of mind that allows you to be centred and one-pointed. That your energy is one-pointed and it's pointed in the direction of meaning and purpose. And then there is the stone of destiny. And it's said that if you sit on this stone of destiny and you are the rightful king or queen of Ireland, then the stone will affirm your name. And you are the rightful Queen and King of Ireland because your destiny is to find the meaning and purpose of your life through the expression of love. And this is a kingly and queenly expression of your life force. And these gifts are still with us. These gifts will always be with us. They are buried underground with the beautiful people they are buried within the heart that is the beauty within you and you are here to realise that and in getting these gifts share these gifts with others 
And that's the invitation from the beautiful people, the two Ahadadana. George Bernard Shaw, 1856-1950, was a Nobel laureate for literature. He wrote five novels, over 50 plays, essays, criticisms and letters. He was a journalist, orator, feminist, vegetarian and teetotaler. He co-founded the London School of Economics. He condemned the execution of the leaders of Easter Rising, visited the front during World War I, was awarded the 1925 Nobel Prize, an Academy Award in 1938, and turned down a knighthood. Yulika Connor summarizes Patrick Kavanagh's contribution to the Irish literary renaissance. I mean, he would be the best Irish poet after Yeats, I think. You see, the thing was, in three different periods, the country period, you know, the Pegasus and all that stuff. Then he had the intellectual, satiric period of the great hunger. And then finally he had the anguish period when he came out of hospital and wrote those gilded sonnets, which are among the best sonnets ever written in the English language. Yulik O'Connor summarises John Millington Singh's contribution to the Irish literary renaissance. I would think that Singh would be in the first five of the English-speaking playwrights of the 20th century. I mean, as Yeats said himself, uh, Augusta Gregory, John Singh and I held that all that we wrote must come from contact with the earth. And they did that. They had a contact with the Irish people, Irish culture, Irish background. Singh went off to the Iron Islands. He two methods of entree into the islands. He could speak the language, first of all, which was very unusual. And secondly, he could play the fiddle beautifully. And that enabled him to become, in a year or two, really a part of the islands. And then he discovered the gold mine. He found that these people spoke a language which had really dropped out of all the other European languages in the Renaissance time, because we hadn't been touched by the spread of culture at that time. And this was... Poetic words, language, images, preserved in poetry, which they recited as other people today would sing pop songs to each other, and in their own conversation, and in the actual underlying musical conversation, there was something which was a folk music, and I don't mean singing, of melody of words, which is almost the same as Mahler and Beethoven discovered in their music. Yulika Connor summarises WBH's contribution to the Irish literary renaissance. You see, at about that time in Ireland, something took place, or was taking place, right through, it was just like in Europe, in Italy, and in England, and in France, they'd all had three different renaissances, if I may use the word in the plural. But uh, in fact, the last one, Ireland never had a renaissance. And just at the end of the 19th century, when the two breeds, the Anglo-Irish and the Gaelic-Irish, were coming together in one, this new Irishman was born. The 20th century Irishman, who was either Anglo-Irish or Gaelic, but the new one. And as all moments of conception have excitement about them, so too, that Ireland was on fire. That's the Ireland of Joyce, Yeats, Shaw, Oscar Wilde. Sean Casey, you can go on and on. Three Nobel Prize winners for literature in Dublin, the only city in the world, four if you count James Heaney and Derry. I mean, the place was on fire with literature, and that has something to do with the fact that the new Irishman was actually being manufactured. <laughs> 
by the various sociological and genealogical things that were happening at the time. I mean, you could say that Swift was the beginning of it, and then the final peak of it for these men. Eunuch O'Connor summarises Lady Gregory's contribution to the Irish literary renaissance. She wrote nearly 100 plays. One of the great writers of the one-act play in the world. There's the, the Workhouse Ward is a complete masterpiece done all over the world. And she was also a wonderful poet. She had a real sea change and went and she learned Irish. She went into the Royal Irish Academy, rescued documents, wrote a whole history of Cúchulainn and the Irish sagas and the most exquisite poetry, translated from Irish. Eulick O'Connor summarises Brendan Behan's contribution to the Irish literary Renaissance. I uncovered or discovered mm, this mm. treasure trove that was there. He'd written the most wonderful poetry, but it was all in Irish. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Uh, that's where he touched what you might call the heights of Parnassus. Andrew St. Ledger spoke about the connection between the names of trees and Irish family names. The early family names of Ireland um, yeah. would have been the McCarty. Cartine is the Roan mm. tree. So mm. the McCarty is sons of the Roan. Yeah. MacIver mm. is Ivra. Mm. Yo, again, mm. are the sons of the Yew. Yeah. The McCoolan are the sons of the Holly. Mm. The McCool which is going back to Finn McCool, are mm. sons of the hazel. Yeah. So families associated heavily with the trees. It, it is. Um, people, like I, I said, mentioned they were, or my understanding is that they were in a dreamlike existence mm. and that they saw spirits um, within um, all around, in nature. There was a reverence for nature and a reluctance to um, willfully damage nature because, yeah. again, nature was... Um, the provider. Why would you be damaging your provider? You yeah. know. So there was a very different, absolutely understanding. Andrew St. Ledger pointed out where some of Ireland's most important historical manuscripts are housed. What we kind of need to be careful of is individuals' interpretation of history and of of um, the translations of manuscripts. We we've lost this very little information um, has survived like I say we're dealing with ancient times and ancient information so we need to just b basically l look at the actual translations of the manuscripts yeah and like I say take from that what we what we can we have the annals of the four masters we have the book of Lekin we have the book of Ballymote but mm. but again it seems the royal families of Europe hold like the Brehan laws we've again translated only a, t a fragment of of the Brehan Law manuscripts, but that the majority of information on Ireland and the ancient Irish is held in the libraries of the Vatican, mm. of the royal families of Europe, and these are the most valuable books in the world. Yeah. They have not been translated. What we need is a, a, a campaign to actually maybe raise the funds to get access to those manuscripts and have them translated. Yeah. And in that way, we could get a clearer picture of how these societies really did operate and hopefully, you know, guide us, give us guidance with the ways of the past, use the past to create our future or to help in these, um, you know, stressed times we're living in. We need wisdom. Yeah. And we know that these ancient cultures um, had wisdom in abundance. 
Yeah. And we also need to learn from them that, you know, they respected nature and the forest. And if we're to have a future again, it would seem it has to be a closer relation with the forest yeah. for cities, for rural farmers. We need the integration again of uh, woodlands, forests and people. B. Smith and Tony Cookson read poems to commemorate friends of theirs who died tragically in the Northern Ireland Troubles. Okay, I'm reading this poem in memory of Adrian Lamph, who was shot in Armagh after the Good Friday Agreement. And the poem is Lost by David Wagoner. Stand still. The trees ahead and bushes beside you are not lost. Wherever you are is called here, and you must treat it as a powerful stranger, must ask permission to know it and be known. The forest breathes. Listen. It answers. I have made this place around you. If you leave it, you may come back again, saying, here. No two trees are the same to raven. No two branches are the same to wren. If what a tree or a bush does is lost on you, you are surely lost. Stand still. The forest knows where you are. You must let it find you. My dead friends, by Maria Howe. I have begun when I'm weary and can't decide an answer to a bewildering question to ask my dead friends for their opinion. And the answer is often immediate and clear. Should I take the job? Move to the city? Should I try to conceive a child in my middle age? They stand in unison, shaking their heads and smiling. Whatever leads to joy, they always answer, to more life and less worry. I look into the vase where Billy's ashes were. It's green in there, a green vase. And I ask Billy if I should return the difficult phone call, and he says, yes. Billy's already gone through the frightening door. Whatever he says, I'll do. Whatever he he says, I'll do. I'll hear your footsteps softly over me. In my grave I will warmer and sweeter be. If you stand and tell me that you love me, then I shall sleep in peace until you come to me. Until you come to me. Anne Smith talks to us about her love of trees. Like, I mean, I had an argument with the Fingal County Councilman because he said it was the trees were blocking the light. And I said, well, move the lamppost. I mean, that doesn't feel anything. Yeah. You know, the tree is a living thing. Why do you need to cut it down? Yeah. So you love trees then? I do. It's a love affair. Yeah. 
It is a love affair, yeah. Yeah. And I can't tell you why, it just is. Yeah. We've come to the end of this programme. You have been listening to new perspectives on Irish history, dreams, themes, myth and ecology, part of the Sound and Vision series of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland. I'm John Houghton, and I would like to thank all those who took part in this programme and the research and production team, myself, Paul Loughran, Alan Weldon and Neil Doyle. This programme was made with the support of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland.